listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Before we read, I want to say something, and I might say it a couple of times throughout the morning, but I want it to sink in. Christian faith is personal, but it is not private. Christian faith is personal, but it's not private. What makes it personal is that it deals with a person, right? Like you, you have Christian faith. You are a person. Someone else doesn't have faith for you. It involves you. But it's not overly individualized. And it's not just for private places. It's also for public places. For example, at a church. This is a public place. We're we're public. Anybody can kind of come in. There's no kind of requirements. But it's also for how we live. There's a body politic. There's something that we are called to. People we're called to care for and to provide for. And this is what the prophets were often talking about. And here we are again. In Amos. Amos writes this in Amos chapter 8. He says, This is what the Lord God showed me a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, says the Lord. The dead bodies shall be many, cast out in every place. Be silent. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances. Buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who lives in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? On that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn the feast into mornings and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on on all loins and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning of uh, an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or of thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. That's heavy. Get a sense of that heaviness. God's not playing around. This isn't some suggestion. This is not like, well, if you can get your life in order and you can, you know, get your accounts in order and get your relationships in order and, you know, become, you know, a quote unquote good Christian and attend church on a regular basis, then 
you know, 20, 30 years in, perhaps if it's working out well, if you have a little extra time or money, perhaps you'll be concerned about such things. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And here's the amazing thing. I grew up in church. We went to church all the time. We went to church on Sunday mornings. We went to church on Sunday nights. Does anybody remember that, going to church on Sunday nights? Yeah, that's the thing. We went to church on Wednesday nights. Sometimes we went to church on other nights of the week, right? Um, we, we would have like evangelism, or we would have like uh, choir practice, or we'd have like a Bible study. I mean, we were church goers. And I love the Lord. I mean, I, I prayed every night. I would not just like pray, I would like kneel down on my knees beside my bed and say my prayers. God was near to me. I knew the Lord. I love the Lord. But we didn't talk much about justice. In fact, I didn't even know it was a topic. Now, what's interesting about that is it's mentioned in every book in the Bible. There's not a single book in the Bible where the topic of justice doesn't come up. And yet, I spent decades in the church and never heard about it. In fact, not only did I not hear about it, but once I first did hear about it, it, it was told to me with like, with like a bit of caution. Like, beware. Beware. There are some so-called Christians who want to talk about justice. Hmm, that's... That's weird. Like, somehow it will, it will deter from our primary goal, which was evangelism. And so, acts of mercy were kind of expected, but they were always paired with a warning. Yeah, somebody might be hungry, and you can feed them, and they have a full stomach. But if you don't tell them about Jesus, they're going to die and go to hell. And what good have you done? Well, there is some good that you've done. You fed their stomachs. That's a good thing. You know, it's kind of hard to listen to somebody else when you're hungry. Like if, if perhaps you got here today and you hadn't eaten breakfast. And you're thinking, well, Robbie's saying something. I probably should pay attention. But if you're hungry, it's harder for you to listen to someone. It is. When I'm hungry, don't talk to me. <laughs> Feed me and then we'll talk. Because if I'm hungry, I'm having a hard time hearing you. And this is the message. It comes again and again and again. One, uh, one of my favorite kind of scholars of the Old Testament, his name's Walter Brueggemann, he says one of the things that he believes that the ancient Israelites kind of offered ancient cultures was this concept of neighbor or neighborliness. Like we all had like families or clans or tribes, but there wasn't much kind of caring for someone in another tribe. The other tribe was more, more likely an enemy, someone to kind of contend against. But in Leviticus, we see this kind of claim that we're not just supposed to care for like our family members and, and those that are you know, closest to us. We're also supposed to care for that other group. And so there were different tribes in the people of Israel. But you weren't just supposed to care for your tribe. You were supposed to care for someone else. This idea of neighbor, that we were to love God and that we were to love our neighbor. 
And so they had certain rules. This is also in Leviticus. It's rules about how to kind of care for one another. And it, it, it reached beyond just the basic, you know, tell them that God loves them. But let's say um, you own a piece of property and you've grown a crop. You were allowed to kind of, as you were reaping your crop, to go over it once. But you weren't supposed to go over it a second time. Because if you went over a second time, you might end up getting it all. And in the first time through, there'd be some left over. It actually says this in, there was a reference to this in this passage from Amos. It says, the selling, the sweepings of the wheat. Selling the sweepings of the wheat. Not just selling the wheat that we harvested, but we're going to sweep it all up. And we're going to sell that bit too. But if we've done that, then what about those folks that don't have anything? So if you had a plot of land and it was like a square, you were supposed to harvest it in a circle. But harvesting it in a circle kind of left the corners unharvested. Because what if, again, what if somebody was coming through and they were hungry? What would they do? Well, they would have, they would have a way to kind of access food. It was a, a built-in system so that everyone would kind of be cared for. It says these things, too, in Leviticus. It says, well, what should we do with foreigners, right? Aliens that are among us, right? Kind of like Sting, an Englishman and living in New York. <laughs> I was in London a few weeks ago, and I'm like, I'm just the opposite of Sting. I'm an American in London. And I can't sing. <laughs> so I was like the complete inverse of the rock star. <laughs> so so what, what do we do? What does Leviticus say that we should do with a foreigner or an alien? It says this. It says, first, I want you to remember that you, Israelites, were once a people who had no land. So remember that. That the position they are in now is the position you were once in. Right? For not for the grace of God, so go we. So you were once like them. That's the first thing. And then the second thing he says, I want you to treat them as though they were native born. Treat them as though they were native born. This is, this is just in that same chapter where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? This is a few chapters away where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat the alien, the foreigner, as someone who is native born because you too were once a people without a land. Who, who are we anyway? So this idea of justice, it happens again and again. And we see it um, in, in a variety of ways. And this parable that we kind of shared at the beginning helps us differentiate a bit between different types of compassion. So sometimes compassion might motivate us towards active of mercy, right? So as Jesus says in Matthew 25, he's like, this, this is how in the end we're going to be able to tell who was with me and who wasn't, right? I was hungry, and they gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and they gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger and they welcomed me in. That's the foreigner, the alien, right? I was a stranger and they welcomed me. Um, I was, let's see, what did I say? Hungry, thirsty, stranger. I was uh, sick and they cared for me. I was a prisoner and they came to visit me. These are those things. But sometimes, uh, Scripture will talk about caring for those in immediate needs. Kind of like the folks who found themselves in the river, whatever the cause was upstream. They found themselves in the river and they're kind of helpless. They, if, if somebody doesn't come to their aid, they could perish. They, they are suffering from some form of uh, food insecurity or they're suffering from some form of access to, to clothing or access to education or access to, to safety. And so people were doing things to kind of treat their immediate needs. We'll call those acts of mercy. But then... And, and this is not, I should say, this is not either or, right? This is both and. Or is a tyrant. You might have thought it was a conjunction. <laughs> but it's more than a conjunction. Or is a tyrant. It tells you you have to choose A or B. But that's not how mercy and justice work. It's not mercy or justice. It's mercy and justice. These things go together. One of the, one of the greatest uh, examples of an act of mercy is the parable that we preached about last week, the Samaritan. So we often refer to the Samaritan as what? The good Samaritan, which is interesting. There's nothing wrong, I think, with calling the Samaritan a good Samaritan. But the text never calls the Samaritan a good Samaritan. The Samaritan is just referred to as the Samaritan. We came up with it with the good bit. What the text does say about the Samaritan is that the Samaritan act, acted with mercy. It's why we titled the sermon last week, The Merciful Samaritan. Because an act of mercy, I think, is what those people were doing in, the, in this parable when they were kind of pulling people out of the water, where they were placing children with families where they were kind of providing for the needs. But Micah, another Hebrew prophet, says, this is what the Lord requires of you. That's, this is pretty good. This is what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. It's that last bit, the walking humbly with our God, that I think the Christianity of my childhood was kind of, it was the totality of my Christianity, right? So we apparently thought that what the Lord required of us was to walk humbly with God, right? And we got that, and we were good at it. I mean, we, we loved the Lord. We did our devotions. We sang our songs. We attended church. We, we, we had successful people because they, they, did, they followed the rules. We walked humbly with God. But, which, again, it's not, it's not either or. It's not 
justice or mercy or walking humbly with God. It's supposed to be all of these things. This is what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. So, occasionally, we would do some acts of mercy. But we were always, again, a little suspicious of those people in the church who focus so much on mercy. Like, yeah, that's good. Is there an evangelist coming? Don't we have a revival scheduled? Yeah, somebody came up with a mercy ministry. You know, somebody said maybe you should foster care or maybe you should adopt or maybe you should donate. Um, You know, instead of having a garage sale and selling your junk to your neighbors, maybe you could donate it to the church and the church could use it, right? (laughs) All that meant was the church got people's broken stuff. (laughs) You know, stuff that they were going to throw away. That wasn't particularly helpful, right? But those, those were our acts of mercy. But we never quite got around to justice. We didn't even know what justice was. We couldn't, we couldn't define it because the closest thing we could get to it, each time we tried to define justice, it was actually just an act of mercy. It was never going upstream to see what was causing the problem and trying to resolve it there. It was always an act of kind of seeking to meet the immediate need. And I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but I really don't want you to misunderstand me. We need to do all we can to meet the immediate needs. We need to share the gospel. People need to know that Jesus loves them, that their sins can be forgiven, that baptism cleanses them, that the table is open for them to come and receive, that that this is the good news, that that Jesus has provided a way for us to live that is, is the best way for humans to flourish because it's what we're made for. Like, we're, we're made for community. We're made for one another. But that one another that we're made for reaches beyond the bounds that we typically draw and includes others, which, again, is part of that Good Samaritan story. But, but what about justice? So I think with any particular need we identify, we can find ways to act mercifully, and I think we can also find ways to act justly. So James will say this is true religion, that you take care of the widows and the orphans. So if you don't do anything else, at the very least, let's take care of widows and orphans. But the early church, they struggled with that. Like one of the earliest problems that we see in the book of Acts is that they've kind of racially profiled the widows in the community. The Hebrew widows are being cared for, but the Greek widows aren't. Like this, this is early in the story. We're, we're preferring one group over another group. It's what, it seems to be almost what we do naturally. I mean, it seems we, we fall into that rut so easily. And so what the story tells us, right, is that they appointed certain people 
to kind of distribute those things. There was a, a, a practice of delegation, right? They appointed Stephen and Philip and a few others, and they were going to be charged to make sure that all the widows got taken care of, not just the Hebrew widows. It's an interesting story, but I think it also includes a bit of maybe not just what to do, but perhaps a bit of what not to do. So follow me on this one. I'm not opposed to delegation. I realize that in the, in the world, in the church world especially, we're, we're all kind of committed volunteers. It doesn't happen unless we're, we're all in, right? It happens as we come together, as we get it done. And so delegation, I think, is a natural kind of leadership activity. One person can't do it all, so they delegate to other people. So you're going to take care of the children, and you're going to do some singing, and you're going to you know, take care of the finances, and you're going to take care of <clears throat> you know, the lights, and, and you're going to kind of organize our, our feeding effort, right? We, we, it's a division of labor. But the apostles at that moment could have said, oh, wait a minute, widows, now that's, that's a top priority. Maybe we should, we should reserve for ourselves to make sure the widows are cared for. And we can delegate some of these other things. It's interesting that they were willing to delegate widow care. When James would say, this is true religion, caring for the orphans and the widows. What if, in terms of delegation, they delegated other parts of their responsibilities and they had held close to themselves the care for widows? I mean, we know in the Gospels that the disciples are not um, error-free. I mean, it's, sometimes it's almost comical, right? I mean, these are the people who would be the earliest church leaders and look at Christianity around the globe. I mean, obviously something worked. <laughs> Find Christians everywhere. So we want to we want to pay the disciples their due respect. But the gospels don't hold back punches. You know. <laughs> Jesus is like, um, Peter, I'm, I need to wash your feet. And he's like, no, I'm not gonna allow you to do that. Uh, James and John are like, um, so Jesus, when you become the king of Israel, can we be your number one and number two? And he's like, boys, you don't understand how this works. It's, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, a woman comes, and uh, they try to marginalize her. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? A child comes, and they try to marginalize the child. And Jesus is like, hey, fellas, um, bring that child over here. Let, let me see that child. Such is the kingdom of God. So we see that the disciples are not error-free in the Gospels. But then we have, we get in the book of Acts, we have the day of Pentecost, and the pouring out of the Spirit, and all is well, right? But if we imagine that somehow post-Pentecost, the disciples got everything right, I think we are out-distancing the text. Like, there's, there's still problems in the community, they're working out, like, how Jewish do you have to be in order to be a follower of Jesus? Do you have to be circumcised or not? Do you have to 
eat kosher or not? Do you have to, you know, how does this all going to work? And, you know, Peter's having visions and he's preaching to people and their people are speaking in tongues. And he's like, I didn't know they could speak in tongues. I thought that was just for the Jews. But now the Gentiles are doing it. And, and they're trying to find their way. And at one point, Peter sits down to eat with the Gentiles. And at another point, some folks come in and they're like, hey, dude, like, Jews don't do that. And he's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. I got all excited. And he gets up and leaves the table. And then Paul comes at him later. You should read Galatians sometimes. Paul's really mad. It's also one of maybe his first letters he wrote. And so he was a younger guy. And so I kind of think maybe in his youth, he's a little overzealous. But he calls Peter a hypocrite. Like, that's mean. If you ever read in, in, in 1 Peter, he's talking about Scripture, and he talks about the law and the prophets, and then he says the letters of Paul. So it's, it's, it's like Peter is acknowledging that the letters of Paul are, are Scripture, which is, that's, a, that's an early confession, that the Scriptures are being expanded to include new writings. But he, he adds this phrase, the, the law, the prophets, and the letters of Paul, which are, which are sometimes hard to understand. You know which bit I think he thought was hard to understand? That bit where he got called a hypocrite. <laughs> it's like, that's, what's he talking about there? That's hard to understand. That's tough. Christian faith is personal, but it's not private. There is a body politic which is expressed in some ways amongst ourselves. It's why we have a ministry here called Dirty Hands, so that if someone's in need, they let us know and we let the community know and things get provided for. That's, that's a body politic of the Oasis community. Like Dirty Hands is typically not stuff that's going on in, in Lakeland or Polk County. It's somebody here is in need or somebody close, you know, tangentially, right? A family member, a neighbor, right? We're trying to take care of ourselves. But then there's a, there's a greater need. There's a way in which we should be involved elsewhere. And here's part of the challenge. If, if, if a guy walks up to me in a parking lot and says, hey, uh, I don't mean to bother you, but um, here's my ID. I really am who I am. I'm in a tight spot. I need some help. You know, I need $23 to you know, get this bus ticket so I can get it over with my family. And I'm just trying to get my life together. Well, I'm in a position, right, that I can give a guy $23. I can, I can buy him a bus ticket. I can help him get home. But I don't have the authority, I don't have the influence to change a system that causes those types of problems, right? I can't, I can't change the system that causes food insecurity. I can't change the system that causes kind of, um, uh, kind of just the need for justice reform. It's, it's beyond my capacity. Like, and in some ways, it's beyond our collective capacity. Like if every person here at Oasis used all of their influence, right, there's only so much that we could do in terms of justice. So how might that work? How do we 
take our collective call and move it forward. I want to I use one more passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to talk about an example about how that is actually happening in Polk County. Um, it's always good to quote Jesus, right? So Jesus is in a pretty argumentative uh, conversation with some Jewish leaders. This particular passage, it's Matthew 23, this particular passage, um, I hesitate to use a little bit because it's been used so often by people I disagree with. Um, scripture has a certain power to it, but anything with power can be used correctly or incorrectly. Like Paul tells Timothy, study, work hard, labor, rightly dividing the word of truth, which means it's possible to wrongly divide it, which means that sometimes people have used the Bible to actually hurt people, not help people. And Matthew 23 got quoted a lot in Germany in the 1930s. And you know what happened there, right? There was a, there was a huge kind of anti-Semitic swell. And Matthew 23, which... You know, you get on the lips of Jesus, him calling these Jewish leaders some pretty negative things. They're saying, aha, you know, these Christ killers, these, these vipers, these kind of evil people. So when I quote Matthew 23, I know that that was also quoted by the Nazis. But I'm going to say that they were misquoting it, right? It's still in our Bible, right? I think it's still, it's still a useful um, text. Jesus says this. So his, his argument, right, is like the argument in a family. So I might say something about my mom if I'm talking to my sister. I don't want you saying something about my mom. You got that? Yes, right? Yeah. And so if I say something about, you know, conservative Christians or academics, it's an internal argument that I'm having, right? I'm having it with my, with my close with my people. I want them to behave differently. I want them to act differently. I don't want everybody to think so negatively of them. So that's kind of how I read Jesus' comments here with the Pharisees. But this is, there's a long list of stuff, and he gets down to the bottom. He goes, look, you religious leaders, you teachers of the law, you just miss it. Like, how can you possibly get it this wrong? He says, you're willing to tithe on your spices that you cook with. And he, he goes down a list of spices. They're typically not stuff that I would use, so I'll, I'll do a dynamic equivalent here. It's like you're tithing on your, your salt and your pepper and, give me another spice. Garlic. garlic. There you go. You're tithing on your salt and your pepper and your garlic. Like, okay, here's a clove of garlic. I should break it into 10 pieces. I'm going to give this piece to Oasis, just in case they have a spaghetti cook, right? <laughs> and the rest of it I'm going to keep. All right, I got to put some salt in this dish. Okay, so how much is a tenth of this salt? I'm going to give that salt to Oasis. I'm going to cook with the rest of this. He goes, you're tithing on your spices, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters of the law, 
He says, are mercy and justice and righteousness. Mercy, pulling people out of the river. Righteousness, reading scripture, praying, loving God. But then there's also justice. So justice is difficult for us because, you know, we live in a a liberal democracy and we think if I vote, that's kind of the extent to which I can exert any authority. And there's something to be said for voting. I'm not telling you not to vote. But what I am telling you is I think there's more that can be done. So there is a group of churches in Polk County, and this is, this is just an example, right? There are different ways it could happen. But I'll use this as an example because it's close by. Yeah? This is where we live. There's a group of churches in Polk County called, they call themselves Peace. It's the Polk Ecumenical Action Council for Empowerment. And they're a direct action organization. They don't do typical ministry. So they don't do evangelism. That's not what they do. It's not a church. It's a group of churches. The churches themselves might do evangelism, but when they come together, they come together for justice. Um, So they don't do acts of mercy, right? There are other organizations, and there's lots in this town, Blessings and Hope, of course, uh, the food pantry that's around the corner, and um, the owners are here with us. But then there, there are others, you know, there's Parker Street, there's uh, Lighthouse, there's uh, Arbor House, there's Talbot House. Lake, Lakeland has a lot of, of ministries that you can be involved in that need volunteers that do mercy ministry. But that's not what peace does. So peace um, identifies needs through grassroots um, listening exercises. So the churches. Uh, that are involved get together and they say, amongst your families, amongst your neighbors, amongst your coworkers, what's what's not working? Like, what what problems do you see? And they see problems like health care or mental health care or transportation or um, kind of out of school suspensions, um, juvenile justice issues, and so they come together once a year to identify. What problem do we think is most crucial? And they vote on it. And once they've identified a problem to work on, they break up again in groups and they try to find out how are other counties or cities in the state of Florida handling that problem? How are they addressing it? Like what's going on in Tampa or Orlando or Jacksonville or Miami? What's going on in other smaller communities, more the size of like Lakeland or Winter Haven or Auburndale? And these, these, are, these are folks like you and me, these regular folks. They're teachers, they're social workers, they're construction workers, they're ministers, they're, you know, the whole, you know, physicians, what have you, the whole range of occupations. And having done that, they come back together and they say, okay, this is what we found. Like, we found that this is not just a perceived problem, Right? We found actual data that this is a problem. We found other counties or cities in our state who've addressed this in a certain way. And then they meet with whatever stakeholders who can make a decision. So if it's a criminal justice thing, they meet with the sheriff. If it's, um, if it's transportation stuff, they meet with the Citrus Connection. If it's uh, you know, juvenile justice, they meet with the Department of Juvenile Justice. 
If, if it's um, funding, they meet with the county commissioners. And so you, you may know this, but in Polk County, uh, we have a half cent sales tax hike that we, that we voted for. You might have voted against it, I don't know. But more people voted for it than against it. And that half cent sales tax um, produces about $32 million a year. That's a lot of money. And of course, that's not just us that spend it. That's anybody who passes through and buys anything, right? Anybody who buys anything in Polk County, half a cent of the sales tax, it went from 8% to 8.5, half a cent goes into a fund to provide health care for people who live here. Yeah, that's, that's good news. Um, when it was first passed, the churches went to the county commissioners and they said, hey, we don't think there's enough health care for people in Polk County. And the commissioner said, well, you're, you're probably right, but we don't have the money to pay for it. That's always the answer, right? The answer is always we can't afford it, right? That's a, it's a myth of scarcity um, because there actually always is enough, right? There's not a lack of food that's causing food insecurity. It's a lack of access to food. We throw away more food than, than what most countries make, right? It's not, it's not a lack of food. That's not the problem. So they said to the county, county commissioners, um, well, why don't we raise the, you know, the sales tax? And, and commissioners aren't really fond of raising taxes because that doesn't get you revoted in, right? And so they said, I don't, I don't think that's the best idea. And they said, well, why don't you let the people decide? Like, make a referendum. See, see what happens. And they, they kind of laughed. They're like, oh, people aren't going to vote to raise their own taxes. And the churches said, let us see what we can do. And so there were 19 churches, and they, they hit the pavement. They knocked on doors. They had a campaign. They told their neighbors. They said, hey, if we raise this, it's going to be money set aside so that there's free health care. And it passed. It originally passed for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, uh, and the, church has, the churches, the group piece, has been kind of keeping an eye on how the money gets spent, right? Kind of like a watchdog group. Like, this money's coming in, but is it actually being spent to help people who don't have health care? And sure enough, it is. So there are five free clinics in Polk County that have been built. There's doctors and nurses who now volunteer their time to work at those places. So now we have the facilities and we have healthcare professionals who are volunteering. And then there's been some pharmaceutical companies who have donated some drugs and there's been some healthcare um, like devices. What would you call that? Utilities. Um, equipment, thanks. Yeah, that's also been donated. And so the, the 32 million or so that's being raised by the healthcare tax is being met in kind with another 70 million worth of volunteer stuff. So it's producing a little over $100 million a year of health care. This wouldn't have happened had churches not gotten together and said, there's a problem upstream. Like, we can do what we can do to help the people right here, but what's causing this problem? They went upstream to see what the problem was. And, and when they got upstream, they did something about it. Collectively, they used their, their collective voice 
they, they meet at the Civic Center right downtown. And they call it the Nehemiah Action after the Old Testament um, prophet or businessman, uh, Israelite leader. I'm not exactly sure how to identify Nehemiah. But Nehemiah did just that. He saw a problem. He organized the stakeholders. He got the people together, and they met with the stakeholders, and together they said, hey, I think we should be doing this differently, and it was done differently. This is justice. Walter Rauschenbusch wrote a book in the beginning of the 20th century called uh, Christianity and the Social Crisis. It, in some ways, was the birth of what eventually became called the social gospel. And once again, growing up, I was taught that the social gospel was not the gospel. It was some other gospel. But I think that was the tyranny of the or speaking. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, other than scripture, the book that influenced him more than any other was Rauschenbusch's Christianity and the Social Crisis. And I don't know what you all think about King, but I think he did a pretty good job kind of leading people for change. And full transparency here, you know I'm an Appalachian American. I have family members who told me King was just a troublemaker. You shouldn't listen to that guy. He says he talks for peace, but then he leads a march, and so how could he really be for peace? He knows that those dogs are going to be released on him. Shouldn't he just stay at home? King was in jail in Birmingham when eight ministers from Birmingham published a letter in the paper saying they didn't disagree with King theologically, but they disagreed with him politically, that he should just go through the courts. King responded to that. He started on the newspaper, <laughs> on the margins. He's in jail, right? And he's writing in the margins of the newspaper to that open letter. And when he fills up all the margins, he goes to his toilet paper, and he finishes the letter on his toilet paper. We now call that letter the letter from the Birmingham jail. It is one of the most significant pieces of Christian theology ever written by an American. And it quotes radicals like Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Leviticus. It quotes Paul and Jesus and James. It quotes um, Ambrose and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Zwingli and Bart, which is pretty amazing because the guy's sitting in a jail cell and he doesn't have access to a library. He's just recalling all this stuff he's read. So it helps to be a genius, I guess, when you're writing good theology. So perhaps this isn't a message that we can hoop and holler about. Not that we're really hooper and hollerers anyway <laughs> here at Oasis. But it's not the... <laughs> I appreciate that. But it's not the whole gospel rightly divided if you don't hear it. I would be remiss from my responsibilities as your pastor if I only talked about righteousness, evangelism, and mercy. If I only talked about walking humbly with our God, we could all feel warm about ourselves. 
if I occasionally talked about mercy, we could be a little uncomfortable, but maybe we'd spend a few hours out in the heat trying to help feed somebody. But for those of you who are interested, I'd like to talk to you about what it might look like if Oasis became a member of peace. I'll tell you this, we'd be the only white, more mostly white anyway, evangelical church that's a member because the other members are Catholics or Episcopals or Methodists or Presbyterians or Lutherans. And then all the predominantly African-American churches, the AME Zion, the Missionary Baptist. It is an indictment, I think, against us that we look the other way. Christianity is personal, but it is not private. We have a responsibility, not just to tell people the good news of heaven, to tell them the good news of heaven come to earth, which is what we pray for. And it should also be what we act for. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.